Ванной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello, and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. The catastrophic destruction of World War II sent shockwaves through Soviet masculine identity. Millions of men perished or were broken, and the military, a main institution for fostering men in the Soviet Union, was now staffed with women. Post-war reconstruction was not just about rebuilding cities and towns, or getting the economy up and running. It was also about reimagining and reselling the army as a site of masculinity and the soldier as its ideal. So how was masculinity rebuilt in the Soviet post-war period, and how did military masculinity fit within the wider Cold War struggle? Here's Erica Frazier to give us some answers. Erica Frazier is an assistant professor at Carleton University, specializing in Russian and Soviet history. She's the author of Military Masculinity and Postwar Recovery in the Soviet Union, published by the University of Toronto Press. Here's Erica Frazier. So, um, just to start our conversation, I'd like to have you introduce yourself. Sure. Uh, my name is Erica Fraser, and I'm an assistant professor in the history department at Carleton University in Ottawa, uh, up in Canada. Um, my main research areas are in gender and culture, uh, World War II era, after World War II in the Soviet Union. Um, and I'm sort of interested in especially the ways that people's lives diverged from official prescriptions, which you sort of see a lot of in uh, this book. I started in women's history in the 90s in graduate school and, and sort of the heyday of, of gender history and the history of masculinities, which I thought were just really compelling, uh, exciting new fields. But I was always really interested in military history as well and military institutions. Um, I didn't have the fortitude to sort of, you know, care about tanks and bullets, though. I was interested in sort of the social and cultural um, impacts and, and uh, of military institutions. So I ended up, you know, on that sort of uh, track and looking at more cultural sources uh, about that sort of um, stuff. And I'm working now on similar sorts of themes in Soviet sports history in the 20th century. So I'm sort of branching into gender and culture and institutional histories, but of uh, hockey especially and women's hockey and sports stars like uh, Babrov and, and sort of celebrity and sport and masculinity and, and trying to expand the themes from this book into, into issues like that. 
No, oh, that sounds great. I mean, more work on sports, particularly in the post, you know, war period is, is you know, something that's quite lacking, I think. Um, well, your book is called Military Masculinity and Post-War Recovery in the Soviet Union. And I'd like to have you talk about this relationship between masculinity and recovery, two words that are in the title of your book. Yeah, absolutely. Great question <laughs> to start with. Um, I mean, the short answer is that for me, the recovery was contingent on rebuilding masculinity. Um, recovery from the war could not be considered complete without rebuilding masculinity is sort of the big argument I make throughout the book. Um, and the reason for that is based really on two facts about World War II in the Soviet Union that I'm sure many uh, listeners will already know, but putting them maybe starkly like this uh, brings uh, it into some relief. And one is that 20 million men died in that conflict between 1941 and 45, which is far, far more than any other combatant country, right? That's out of about 27 million people total. Um, and it puts a massive demographic dent in the post-war population, right? Other great historians have written about how that statistic sort of influenced post-war society with you know, huge numbers of unmarried women, single mothers, and just these sort of social repercussions of a statistic like that. The second fact, though, is that the Red Army allowed women to take up combat roles later in the war, pretty much out of sheer desperation, um, and how catastrophic the Nazi invasion had been. Uh, Anna Krylova, in particular, has written about this, this wonderful book on women's service in the Eastern Front, and how it was sort of part of a gender regime unique to the Soviet Union. But women were very quickly demobilized from service at the end of the war, and they weren't allowed to re-enlist. And there's this concerted effort in the late 40s to sort of push women out of the military. So I don't write about that story per se, but that's my starting point. I hope someone will write more about that story. Um, but that's my starting point. And I concluded that those two facts were related, that women were kicked out of the military because of the deaths of so many men in the war, that sort of recovering from the war meant reestablishing and rebuilding a link between military service and masculinity that had been, you know, severed by the need to enlist women during the war. And that, you know, full recovery, culturally at least, from the damage of this war could not be considered complete until military service had been, uh, I call it, reclaimed for men. Now, that's a cultural sentiment, of course, and in many ways, something like that can't be accomplished through some kind of decree. Um, but in the book, I look at a variety of processes that contributed to the recovery of military service as a men's uh, domain, you know? And yeah. Let me, let me ask, you know, it's quite surprising in a way that the, given the fact that so many, and you know, of course here are the, the surviving men have passed through the military because of the war, and, and I, I can, of course, think of all sorts of reasons why masculinity would be an issue because, of course, you have a lot of disabled men. Uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of issues of, of broken men, things like this. But at the same time, I'm a bit surprised that masculinity has to be reclaimed considering, especially military masculinity, because you have this great experience that's really defining the immediate post-war period. Yeah, and it's it's something that I think is is existing, especially with the younger generations, and it's tied to you know historians have been looking at the post-war period and youth culture in particular and post-Stalin uh, culture and young people sort of looking for 
different ways to identify and different uh, identities other than some of the almost stock characters of early Soviet history of, you know, soldier, worker, collective farm worker. Um, you know, there were more plurality of identities even before the war, of course, than, than just those ones. But after the war, young people are sort of not having it and and are actively seeking out um, more uh, sort of variety of identities that's possible to pursue in, in music, in subcultures, you know, historians are writing about now. Um, and and so I was uh, interested in, in how that factored into you know, these histories we're seeing of post-war society and of the military as, you're right, as a dominant sort of institution, right? And so uh, a lot of, you know, great histories that have come out the past few years about these subcultures, about various population groups after the war, um, are looking at, you know, some of these marginalized groups. Uh, and I, I wanted to sort of contribute to that, but look at the more dominant group and how is the the military faring? Not from a full military history point of view. I would never call myself a full military historian, um, but from a social and cultural point of view, and how it, it's subtle though, right? It's it's how these sort of processes of rebuilding uh, happened in in various industries and in these sort of micro sites. I look at in various chapters um, in in nuclear science, in with the cosmonauts later in conscripted conscription discourses um, and how these narratives are, are sort of slowly rebuilt. And I saw, you know, the, this sort of happening in different sites in different ways and think it's part of, a, you know, argue in the book, at least it's part of a bigger process, whether or not that's a, you know, huge directive from the government, we I don't think it is like we must rebuild. They, nobody said this is, you know, the, the gender historians bane, right? It's, it's no one saying this. Um, but uh, I hope I prove that that it's there if we look in uh, those sort of some of the less obvious, uh, perhaps places and sources. So I, I was, you know, given all of this, right, I, I was really surprised that you you actually hesitate to um, call this effort to reinscribe masculinity as uh, a crisis of masculinity. So why not, you, you know, on the one hand, I, you know, crisis of masculinity is a, is a trope found in many his, histories about masculinity in general, in different periods of history. But why do you hesitate to use that word? It's something, yeah, I, I'm still sort of working through and certainly worked through for several years, you know, as a, a student and in, then in working on the book uh, and citing my sources on that, you know, it's not my idea to um, uh, turn away from it now. And that's coming from the great gender historian, Mary Louise Roberts, who wrote about this a few years ago, questioning the use of this terminology uh, that was really characterizing so much of masculinity studies for the past uh, 30 years or so, or even, you know, in the 90s, early 2000s. Um, and so her critique of the term has been influential on my thinking. But I mean, the the work that has been done using that term is really, really important, um, especially starting, you know, in the 90s with historians in, in the field I'm most familiar with in sort of European uh, 20th century history and historians of Britain and France in particular, who were writing about, say, World War One and the end of World War One, and finding, you know, uh, boys coming home either wounded or with PTSD. Uh, women are in, quote unquote, their jobs and and running societies at home, and and this sort of 
what felt like sudden loss of privilege and power for many men in, in post-World War I European societies. Uh, and, and that many authors have called a crisis of masculinity. I think that's really important, sort of this profound rupture moment like that. Um, but I, I really um, take to heart, you know, gender scholars and, and the readings I've been doing and trying to become a part of, like Mary Louise Roberts on uh, questioning, is crisis the right word for every uh, history of masculinity, for every post-war moment even? And I had been kind of using it unthinkingly, and I reevaluated re that. And I thought, you know what, this evidence that I have, um, I don't think it quite points to crisis. Some of this is just maybe semantic, um, but it sort of feels like if, you know, we're always in a crisis of masculinity or nothing is a crisis of masculinity. Um, and it also, to me, in my evidence, at least, it, it felt like it would have to be a single moment when I was more interested in um, the process of transformation. My evidence wasn't really about a single moment of sort of arriving home for veterans after 45 or something like that. It was much more about this 20, 25 year process where I look at a variety of sites. So I use a, a, a word like transformation and, and sort of rebuilding rather than um, a more acute term like crisis. But others, you know, can come to different conclusions depending on the evidence. You begin with this looking at conscription. And you just mentioned a few minutes ago about it seems the concern is is, is about young people and, and getting young people to be part, to go into the military. Um, so why did why did the why did conscription alarm Soviet officials? Well, that's a great question. That that occupied me for a long time, <laughs> and it, it I opened the book with that um, chapter because I think it's it's a really important question. And you know, as you know, the the Bolsheviks' ideological origins are an anti-war Marxism, but from about the Civil War on in the early Soviet Union, it becomes a very militarized place, right? They get away with that by calling it defense of the revolution. Um, but it becomes a very militarized place, meaning that the, the military as an institution had a prominent social and cultural role. Um, so I opened the book with this subject because officials that, and this is where most of my archival work was, um, officials in the Ministry of Defense and the Komsomol especially were really worried about it. And they seem to be worried that these young men after the war, uh, especially in the late 40s and early 50s, were avoiding the draft. And we don't have exact numbers for that. I think it's uh, Josh Sanborn's book on the pre-Soviet uh, military that points out uh, it's hard to count draft dodgers because they don't want to be found, right? Uh, so we don't know exactly how common it was. I imagine it wasn't hugely common, but it's enough that it was coming up in my documents in the Komsomol archive over and over again, this concern that men were avoiding reporting to their conscription points. And by the way, um, for those who don't know, the Soviet Union maintained full conscription for men uh, even after 1945. So, you know, in part, I'm looking at this stuff going, why do they care? What what new war is on the horizon? And, and there wasn't one. A part of it, you could argue, is concerned for potential Cold War conflicts, you know, arising. But then you have stuff like uh, Khrushchev's military reductions in the, the mid-50s. So and he reduces the troop numbers. So he's not quite worried about stuff like infantry service. He's more worried about the rocket forces uh, at that point. So you could argue it's not just 
because of um, uh, concern for having enough troops for a potential Cold War conflict. So I, yeah, I really, you know, struggled with this, like, who cares? The war is over and service is kind of benign at this point. But they did really seem to care in these memos I was looking at between uh, government and among government policymakers. And best I can tell, and what I argue in the book, is that it's it's social and cultural conditioning that they're worried about. They're worried that if men are avoiding uh, reporting to their conscription points, so avoiding the three years that 18-year-olds had to do in, in service, um, that they were avoiding not the service itself, because yes, it isn't a war on, it wasn't comparatively serving, you know, up until um, at least in the early 50s for many young men wasn't that bad, was sort of sentry duty and guard duty and and this sort of stuff. So why bother avoiding it? Um, I, you know, this uh, the chapter looking at that evidence, I end up uh, uh, sort of arguing that it's about avoiding contact with military institutions, with the culture of a military institution. And that worried policymakers that they were like, oh, we need these boys to um, have contact with the hierarchy, with the authority structure, with the discipline, with the you know, various cultural uh, forms that uh, military service offers. And, and not having that, it, it, it seemed to me to be a real uh, gender anxiety moment that if boys didn't have that or young men at 18, 19, that they would be lesser in some way, that their masculinity would be incomplete and their training in martial masculinity would be incomplete. There's so many institutions to cultivate bodies and subjectivities in the Soviet system uh, that it's, it is interesting that the military becomes a, a site that's emphasized for you know building men for masculinity. And, you know, your book is military masculinity. So what does military masculinity mean? I'm so glad you didn't start with that one. But yes, I do have to. <laughs> and, you know, this is something scholars of other countries and militaries have defined this term in a few different ways that I draw on. Uh, and the Soviet Union has some things in common with those places, but some things that are unique, you know, including women's nominal equality and and at least in, in World War II, women's service. So... Uh, overall, I, I, I sort of have three parts to uh, my definition. The first is that it's about authority and sort of this deep belief in a society that men can claim social authority on the basis of their relationship to military institutions. Um, the second part, it's comparative or relational, right? Meaning this form of masculinized identity is in competition with other forms and actively seeks to come out on top. So other identities, you know, might be intellectual or other occupations like worker, which is, of course, very important in Soviet ideology, um, or fatherhood. Uh, but military masculinity seeks authority over those other potential masculine identities. And the third part of military masculinity is that it's always in flux, right? It changes. There's no inherent link between masculinity and military, uh, militarism or military authority. It has to be sort of constantly reforged and renegotiated and, and, and uh, cultivated. It can change. Uh, and part of what I look at in the book is this tension between a state ideology that wants 
uh, you know, when I found a single or singular image of what a Soviet soldier might look like, and people on the ground constantly sort of challenging uh, that image. And one of the reasons I use actually masculinity as a word singular in the title rather than uh, the plural masculinities, which is more you know, the way gender studies, and, and I agree with it, thinks about the plurality of masculine identities. I'm trying to capture that singular image of the sort of defender of the revolution trope that policymakers seemed to want from Soviet boys and men after the war, and that those boys and men are not giving, you know, are, are sort of like, we are going to look elsewhere, we're going to complicate this for you. You know, one and one of the things you look at in trying trying to build uh, what the military relationship to masculinities it's in terms of foreign policy and and within the context of the Cold War and you you have this reproduction of all of these wonderful great cartoons from Krokodil uh, where you see images of of course the the you know enemy is feminized there's even there's one, my favorite, I think, is uh, one where this French woman is tied up. It's like there's S&M. There's all sorts of like, there's all sorts of domination, right? There's all sorts of submission and domination, feminization. It's just really a visually rich, uh, you know, panoply of, of, uh, of imagery. So talk about the relationship between masculinity and the politics of the Cold War and what role it played. Sure. Yeah, I <laughs> I had such fun with those images, and um, you know, part of me thought, oh, I, this is a separate study that maybe doesn't uh, shouldn't be in this book, but you know, I, I think it, it's part of the same conversation. So yeah, those who haven't seen the book yet, it's got some tremendous uh, crocodile cartoons which are sort of shocked me in their consistency in the midst of all this sort of gradual transformation and change. They're sort of so consistent from the mid forties to sixties in these portrayals of uh, enemy, so-called enemy masculinities in the cold war as, as deviant or lacking in some way. And, and so uh, part of the very subtle way I find that the, you know, Soviet policymakers are rebuilding the link between Soviet masculinity and, and military identity is by demonizing foreign military men and, and showing these sort of foreign actors and uh, generals or diplomats as, um, yeah, like uh, famously Uncle Sam tying up um, Marianne, the, the image of the French Republic. And, and um, I think the subheading I put there was like assaulting Marianne and these sort of images of either SNM or domestic violence and sexualized violence in, in a crocodile which is this like very popular, um, widely read humor and satire magazine. Um, so there, yeah, I think the, 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 the visualization of what proper uh, militarized masculine behavior could look like was really important there. But the broader topic of, you know, gender and masculinity and the politics of the Cold War is so crucial and huge. And, and, you know, my early reading on that sort of topic uh, by historians of the US was really influential. Like I remember reading Elaine Tyler May like, ages ago, 20 years ago on containment ideology, like literally keeping middle class white women in the home, uh, you know, because the I, I was my mind was blown by this book. It still is like nuclear, the nuclear world outside being too dangerous for them. Um, but also just, you know, so much work in American history on 
essentially like if socialist women worked, then freedom for American women meant not working. And this sort of domesticity ideology is so tied to the Cold War. It's, it's really uh, still incredible to me how that operated uh, in gender terms. You know, then you have someone like Robert Dean uh, writing ages ago on masculine identities within administrations like the Kennedy administration and uh, Kennedy and his advisors being all products of this sort of same bo boarding schools, the same elite circles of white male privilege. So historians are starting to write more about this kind of thing in the Soviet Union, but we didn't for a while. And I think that's because the context was... Uh, different, right? We, there's no um, sort of fear-mongering in, in the Soviet early Cold War, the nuclear drills, the hiding under your desk, building bomb shelters in the basement. Like the Soviet Union doesn't do stuff like that because they don't want to appear to be warmongering to a population that's just, you know, come out of this devastating war. So I think, you know, Soviet historians haven't looked as much at this sort of uh, thing as historians of the U.S. yet, but it's emerging and there's some really great work coming out now, so what I find, you know, in trying to contribute to that is, is the domestic and the international context working together, right, sort of rebuilding, reinforcing Soviet military masculinity together. But the government has to be careful. Um, you know, in my government narratives uh, part, they can't be like, join up so you can bomb Americans. Like they can't, if they're worried about young men's service, they can't sell it that way because that sounds, you know, it's at odds with the peaceful ideology um, of the Soviet uh, Cold War that it's putting out in the world, but also domestically. So, so they're trying to sell military service as this sort of cultural need, but it's very much tying into the international politics of the Cold War as well, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you, you shift in, in the latter part of, or the second half of the book, looking at the sciences and, and you, you even open this book with this wonderful recollection from Sakharov. And I actually want to read this part of the book because so listeners can have an understanding of what we're talking about. Oh, good. Cause I was trying to think if I have to sum up this joke. Yeah, exactly. Like so yes. Just, yeah, no, it's too, it. it's too good to not, <laughs> to not read. So, um, so you're writing about how Sakharov, you know, they just completed a test of a nuclear bomb, and, and Sakharov is, of course, worried about the implications of what might happen if this these weapons are used. And it, there's a banquet where he's present with military people and scientists, and he, Sakharov stands up and gives a toast, and he says, quote, may all our devices explode as successfully as today's, but always over test sites and never over cities. Now, um... I forget the general's first name. Um, oh, uh, Mitrofan. Yeah, Mitrofan Nedelian. Yeah. Uh, you know, everybody goes silent. And Nedelian stands up and he's smiling at Sakharov. And he, he, he holds up his glass and he says, let me tell a parable. An old man wearing only a shirt was praying before an icon. Guide me, harden me, guide me, harden me. His wife who was lying on the stove said, just pray to be hard, old man. I can guide it in myself. Let's drink to getting hard. Now, <laughs> you, you, you talk about how uh, the, you know, historians of science have interpreted this as you know, scientists being um, subordinated to the state, et cetera, et cetera. The, the whole like impotency part just was so clear from the beginning. So what is your take on this, this, you know, this scene and, and how does it feed into the masculinity among scientists? 
Yeah, thanks for reading that out. So I, I gave that to students once, I think, in a seminar years ago about like sharing our introductions. And, and I'm like, well, I'll share mine too. And and their first question was like, why is she lying on the stove? Uh, like, I don't have an answer for that. It's not the part to focus on. It's such a dirty, lewd sort of joke. And you don't often see stuff like that in, in Soviet history sources. So this is from Sakharov's memoirs written um, in, the, in the early 90s. Um, and... So this is from Sakharov's memoirs written many years later. Um, and it's, I, I read that very early in, in graduate school in a course I was doing, I think on Soviet science. And I was interested in nuclear physics and I was interested in these guys and, and how they sort of experienced the Cold War. Um, and I was trying to sneak it into sort of essays ever since. And professors would be like, yeah, the, does it have to open every single essay? I'm like, oh, it's opening the book. It didn't open, uh, you know, so. Um, but how I write, so it's, it's, there's so much to it. And, and yeah, other historians have noted this story. It's sort of a famous story. And absolutely, it is about hierarchies in science and, and party hierarchies and who can uh, speak up and who should do as they're told. But why that sort of metaphor? So in many ways, yeah, I use it to open the book to get at this sort of uh, the importance of, of military masculinity and the, the, the language used by this and this marshal, this highest rank in the, the military against this scientist who, you know, had received a deferment from service uh, in the war as a student and researcher. So, so Sakharov didn't serve in the war and, and this sort of... Um, you know, way in which their identities clashed in many ways. And, but at the same time, it, I thought it was a bit too easy to read it just as like hard military identity and soft science or soft other identities. I think it's much more complex than that. That's sort of the way that Sakharov lays it out. But I started digging into this and I became actually much more interested in the way Sakharov tells that story and the way these narratives about martial masculinity get told uh, as well. And I ended up then going to several other memoirs and, and these um, very famous, you know, nuclear researchers from the early 50s, a lot of them wrote their memoirs because, you know, they considered themselves important and they were important and they considered themselves as sort of um, soldiers of the Cold War in their own way. Even though, and it's important to note, even though many of them ended up quite pacifist like Sakharov. So they, they I don't mean to suggest, and I, I hope I make this clear in the book, that they were part of a military um, image. They would have really objected to that, I think. Um, but I think they they are part of, um, you know, this reassertion of martial masculinity in the way they talk about their service and their creation of these weapons. So the I was sort of interested in, in who claims the authority to tell stories like this um, and how someone like Sakharov, so famous as a pacifist and, and dissident later in life, um, but also very proud of his this invention, like for the scientists there, this is pure science that they're really proud of. I was really interested in how he narrated the story in his memoirs. And he follows that story like two sentences later with, well, anyway, Nadjelin died in an ICBM crash a few years later or explosion. So, you know, to hell with him kind of. And, and it's like, so that's where military masculinity gets you. You want to question my masculinity as a scientist? Off you go to, to be blown up by an ICBM test. And it, it's sort of this rhetorical flourish. So, you know, I ended up uh, calling the chapter uh, Telling Manly Stories About Nuclear Physics, because I was interested in, in, in um, you know, who gets to tell these stories? 
how these men experienced or mediated their relationship to martial authority, especially as men outside official military structures, but tremendously impacted by them. Um, and for sort of theorizing this, I ended up leaning quite a bit on the, the great sociologist um, R.W. Connell, Raywin Connell, uh, and her theories of complicit masculinity, you know, that, that the implied authority of military masculinity has a trickle down effect and can be reinforced by other categories of masculinity, whether or not they mean to, you know, and so I sort of look at the, the physicist laboratories that they describe in these memoirs as these, these spaces where they're reinforcing hierarchies over women in their labs and, and this sort of thing. So um, there's this sort of hegemonic masculinity model, but also in what ways are other groups of men complicit in uh, shoring up martial authority? Yeah. Um, what what about women? I mean, you know, where does, where does femininity or women function in this relationship of trying to reestablish a military... A masculinity. I mean, you mentioned, of course, the fact that you're purging the military out, you know, women out of the military, you're not allowing them to, to be a part of the military. But what about in society in general? Do you see a, is, do you see or know that there is a effort to also create a, a comparable or at least a compatible femininity to this ma- military masculinity? It, it's so, yeah, it's complex and it's so interesting. And, and this sort of rejection of especially military femininity, like when I talk about military masculinity, there's this implied opposite. And, um, you know, of course, there's there's more than just uh, or should be more than the two gender roles. But for the Soviet government, they're sort of working in this dichotomy, this duality. Um, but it's it's in the broader context, I get into this a little bit in, in the second chapter, um, the broader context is a, a society run by women after the war, right? Those demographic statistics about 20 million dead in in, in some age groups more than others, uh, but especially younger men are just gone, you know, from from society, uh, especially on the collective farms, you know, the in agriculture, women are running things, women are running Leningrad. Um, so, so there's sort of this uh, lack of, of admission by the government that this is what's going on like in some ways and it's complex and other historians you know have have looked at legislation and um you know support for single mothers and ways in which i don't mean to suggest the the state just you know did not acknowledge this at all but you know in the material i'm looking at they they certainly don't and they they don't seem to have any sense of of the the huge demographic um changes the place where it shows up the most is in the uh, admissions to military academy Academies and and sort of this sense of uh, we have to get boys or cadet age boys out of these women-run homes and put them in military academies, the officer academies I talk about a little bit, uh, the Suvorov academies in particular, um, as sort of recreating a more masculinized family where they can have male role models. It's sort of the assumption or the implied, uh, you know, they don't have male role models outside in the outside worlds. They have mothers and grandmothers, and like, like that's not in enough kind of uh, implication. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's complex. And in other parts of, of Soviet society, women, you know, really are, are able to, to do, I think, very well in, in post-war society, depending. But the, the regime seems to struggle with what to do with this women-populated society, you know. For example, you don't have, like you mentioned in the United States, where you have this containing women in the home, 
um, do you not, do you have these discourses of um, domesticity of uh, femininity and here with the femininity or a particular type of femininity, I'm thinking in contrast to say a person like Yuri Gagarin, who is this handsome, you know, lovely smiling man. He's like the archetype of, you know, celebrity sexuality. If you have a, who, you know, a compatible woman who's supposed to be on his arm, like a compatible femininity that goes along with a Gagarin. Well, sort of, but not as much. And, you know, the the person you might point to is Valentina Tereshkova, the first woman in space, who's, who's part of his sort of first, uh, they call the group of six that, that flew in space first over about a three-year period in the early 60s. Um, but she, you know, her her media persona is so interesting. And, and I had to include a little bit on her, too, because... Um, you know, there's, there's this, uh, the, one of the, I think it's like a crocodile at, at one point, you know, says something like, um, you know, she's our, our Bridget Bardot, but that's not the, but also then they walk in there like, but not like that kind of thing. Like that's not the, the sort of femininity that the, the regime wants, uh, representing Sovietness, right. Either femininity or not. Um, so there's, I mean, Gagarin, oh, Gagarin is so, so interesting. I loved writing about Gagarin. Uh, and there's been, you know, great studies of the Soviet space program in the last 10, 15 years um, that, so I'm not, you know, rehashing that, but um, what I found so interesting about the cosmonauts publicity tours in the early 60s is the Air Force uniforms that accompany them, right? And so I sort of took that nugget and, and looked into their publicity and their celebrity culture and their world tours more like that. So Gagarin had to be presented as a um, uh, husband and father who is loyal to his wife, was not famous. She was a, a nurse, but she could not be, um, you know, sort of a, a celebrity, um, you know, match made uh, in those ways that you might see a celebrity couple uh, sort of today. And and it's, it's sort of interesting that he had to be safely married. He couldn't be paired up with Tereshkova. She did get paired up with another cosmonaut, uh, the bachelor of the group, Nikolaev, which is just like of all the TV shows being made about, uh, I guess maybe it's too uh, recent, but being made about Russian history lately, I, I would, you know, look for one about the uh, scandalousness of, of this, but <laughs> I'd watch this. But this sort of, you know, hard to tell if it was legitimate or not, or this sort of putting them together as a celebrity couple, because uh, having Tereshkova as this single 26-year-old woman who was this global celebrity picked to be the first woman in space, um, it, it wasn't okay with authorities, right? She had to be married off. And very quickly after her flight, she's announced to be in this courtship with a fellow cosmonaut, um, one of the lesser known ones uh, at the time. And, and they, you know, she's very quickly um, married and pregnant and pictured in magazines with her child rather than in a spacesuit. So she, there is sort of that domesticity narrative um, about her. Now, let's not to minimize her accomplishments. I've had um, some really great conversations with people like Roshana Sylvester about this, who's written about Tereshkova's um, impact on young girls and and getting girls into science and technology. And that's really real. Like, I, I, that's absolutely real. Um, so I don't mean to minimize her, her impact. Uh, but at the same time, you know, the ways in which she's presented and and safely presented it has to be as a wife and mother and and there's sort of this way in which her femininity can be shared
shared that has to be uh, kept within certain confines, I think, that didn't apply to the men. And she's not allowed to wear a military, she's given an honorary military rank, but she's not allowed to be seen uh, in anything other than a simple dress. Uh, the men have to be in uniform. I mean, there's sort of these visual cues that have these deeper meanings for recasting um, and relinking military authority with masculinity. What about the excesses of masculinity? You know, domestic violence, sexual violence. I mean, you mentioned early on about how, you know, the fact that the Red Army, as it pushes into Germany, there's mass rape and sexual violence of all sorts. And, uh, you know, how how do, how is this excess, you know, to put it lightly, uh, dealt with in this effort to create a military masculinity? It's not. Not that I can see. And it's a great question. And uh, yeah, I have in the introduction, you know, this part that's so, I wish I could say a lot more about it. It's just sort of like, this haunts the book. You know, the, there's there's no sources I looked at in any realm, archival or cultural, that, rem- and, you know, I'm not surprised about that, but that remotely mention even obliquely anything possibly to do with the mass rape by the Red Army soldiers of German women, women of other nationalities in Eastern and Central Europe in 1945-46 as the Red Army pushed into uh, Eastern Europe and into Germany. It's, it's uh, you know, a, a huge silence. And I really, really hope, uh, you know, a future researcher can take that up and, and do that, do something with that because uh, it's, it's, so I sort of say it haunts this book um, and the the much more rosy depictions, even, you know, a, a state uh, Komsomol official worried about conscription uh, is sort of a rosy problem to be having when, there, uh, you know, I see no reckoning with the violence committed by uh, those troops. Um, and violence in general really isn't talked about. Sexual violence, absolutely not. But this sort of, these years in the late 40s, early 50s of these benign years of service, um, you know, authorities are worried that the military fiction they're publishing in, you know, magazines for cadets that I I went through, they're worried it's too boring because it's not about, there's no great battles going on and kids these days (laughs) won't want to read their boring stories about being a sentry. Um, And and there's sort of these uh, uh, pearl-clutching moments like, what what are we going to do to make military service more exciting? Uh, Eventually, by the thaw years, they they you know ramp up stories about the war stories set during the war and and kids want to read this stuff they think but there it's very sanitized there's you know a couple of comedies i talk about that come out in film about serving in the early 50s and just like learning to drive and learning to operate a radio and stuff but it it's completely sanitized so there's i think there's much more work needs to be done on that like yeah as i say i wasn't surprised that my sources didn't talk about any of this um but some sources will out there and and i really really can't wait to to see you know it's sort of a cop out but somebody else do great things with that because yeah the especially the the rape after the is is such a silence and and it, it really it really bothered me when I read this and 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 your explanation on the lack of it I, I of course thought about you know this issue in the 1920s where after the Civil War on the one hand they're worried about like you know the effeminate male but they're also worried about the hypermasculine male right and I was it was interesting that in the post-war period, that hyper-masculine male, you know, the 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 one who is over-sexualized, uh, domestic violence, bad father, drunkard, et cetera, et cetera, that is not part of that military masculinity that you, you're looking at. 
Yeah, that's a good point. And I think you see that type a little bit, you know, thinking just of, of crocodile cartoons and other sort of social commentary about drinking and, and being a social pariah or a hooligan or this sort of stuff that is in the social discourse, I think, in the, you know, in the 50s, uh, in particular. But you're right that it doesn't touch military identities, at least not that I've seen it. it there's sort of, and you see a few of the, uh, you see this in a few of the crocodile cartoons, the military identity is always this archetype of this soldier in a great coat, um, you know, hearkening back to either, you know, Revolution era, Civil War era, or, or the, the Second World War. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a great point, because there should be more conversation about uh, that sort of thing. Uh, but there isn't. And, you know, one way that that folks might get further into that is is more research on what comes after the period I sort of I end in the 60s in part because um, there's some changes to service laws that mean um, conscripts are serving for only two years instead of three and that leads in part to the Diodovshina, the hazing crisis in the 70s and 80s where you do get these uh, excesses so not to say that sort of thing wasn't happening at all before then but it's talked about much more I think in the 70s and 80s and mothers are getting involved and protesting this sort of uh, what's going on in the barracks but that almost, you know, makes the silence on these sorts of issues in the, the late 40s and 50s and 60s that I look at even more acute. Do you have a, a sense of how or if they deal with, say, disability in the sense that, you know, the, here, here you have this promotion of a military masculinity, but then you have hundreds of thousands of people who went through that military and come out broken and destroyed, right? Who come out, you know, basically half men. Yep. And again, that's a silence too. And I think that's really interesting. And Claire McCallum's book just came out. Um, I was able to, due to her generosity, read uh, uh, it uh, in press before, just before I sent off my my uh, last uh, proofs um, and her work on, on uh, the masculinity and visual culture and paint. She's looking at paintings in particular um, and photographs of, of military masculinity. And, and it's, it, she finds there, there's not silence, especially in painting, if I recall correctly, um, about war wounds they're out there and other historians of cinema have have looked at this sort of thing um but I, I, yeah i don't see that in any of my sources as well so there's this real disparity or, or plurality of ways even to represent military masculinity so i sort of focus on this state directive and and uh, state prescriptions and how it's responded to um but on the ground uh, you know in art in various parts of the culture in various parts of the country, uh, you know, I wasn't able to get too far out of Russia uh, per se as well. But there's so many varieties still of ways in which people are understanding uh, masculinity, are forging new masculine identities, and and the persistence, especially in something like uh, crocodile cartoons, of able-bodiedness at a time when we know that wasn't the case in in broader society, right? As you say, is is really really interesting as well. That was Erica Frazier, an assistant professor at Carleton University specializing in Russian and Soviet history. She's the author of Military Masculinity and Postwar Recovery in the Soviet Union, published by the University of Toronto Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, 
write a review on iTunes, or tell your friends about it. And if you listen to this podcast weekly and want to help support it, join the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. As always, I want to thank my generous patrons for their contributions every month to keep this podcast going. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye. Today is the shadow of tomorrow. Today is the present future of yesterday. Yesterday is the shadow of today. The darkness of the past is yesterday. And the light of the past is yesterday. The days of yesterday are all numbered and some. And the word once. Because once upon a time there was a yesterday. Yesterday belongs to the dead. Because the dead belongs to the past. The past is yesterday. Today is the preview of tomorrow, but for me, only from a better and happier point of view. My point of view is the thought of a better and try. Reality, yesterday is eternity. The eternity of yesterday is dead. Yesterday is as one. The eternity of one is the eternity of the past. The past is once upon a time. Once upon a time is past. The past is yesterday. Today. The past is yesterday. Today. Today. While we're searching for tomorrow. The music is different here. The vibrations are different. Not like Planet Earth. Planet Earth sound of guns, anger, frustration. There was no one to talk to about Planet Earth to understand. We set up a colony here. The light of the past is the light which was. The wisdom of the past is the light of the past. The light of the future was the light which is to be. The wisdom of the future was the light of the future, see? Yesterday belongs to the dead. Tomorrow belongs to the living. The past is certified as a finished product. Anything which is ended is finished. That which is perfect is finished. The perfect man is no exception to the rule. The perfect man of the past is made according to the rule of the past. The rule of the past is a law of injustice and hypocrisy. The revelation of the meaning